This is Deep Natter. Let me ask you something. Do process and technique really matter? I mean, in the grand scheme of making art, does it matter what tools or what techniques an artist uses to create their work as long as the end product is compelling or pleasing to look at or moves us in some way? Well, in this episode, that's exactly what Sean and I are talking about. Here we go. I mean, I, I think this is brilliant. I'm so glad you're doing it. Do you, do you ever have like, because you know some people then will criticize and go, oh, but it's Photoshop. Like they do it with photography as well. They'll yeah. go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But someone who does digital art doesn't count. as I love that this is like proper mixed medium. Like you're, you're using every tool at your disposal Absolutely. to actually make thousands of different variations on physical work you've still created from scratch. Yeah. And, and what's more, I can generate, like I could print this out as an emulsion transfer, make a panel, lay this over the top of the panel, and then put another textural layer of gel medium over that, and then texture that again. And this just becomes a base for another piece that goes on top of it. I mean, you're just trying to see if there's such a thing as too much texture. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> kind How of. How can I push this? <laughs> so you're going to walk into a room with with panels that are just cubes because there's yeah. so many layers on it's them. It's just so many. Yeah, it's, it's, it started yeah. out as one, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's so exciting for me that uh, you know it, it's just been it's been really interesting putting these things together. And I've thought about that. You know, I've thought about the the uh well wait sh- sh- you want to you want to start should we start and we can talk about the, some of this stuff oh, i always i always assume we have <laughs> oh we have okay yeah okay um <laughs> record everything <laughs> that's just yeah exactly yeah um you know you, you you bring up a good point because you're right people criticize and complain about everything that it's it's not real or it's not legit yeah, yeah. or it's not you know w- whatever it is which I know you and I don't think, by the way. Like, no, like, not just, at all. I wonder where you where you put it in your head. I love that you embraced it all as one thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I because I think, I think this is me leaning in to everything that I do, right? This is me leaning into photographic elements, illustrative elements, uh, textural elements, and and trying to see, you know, like you were just joking, like how much texture can I create? But it is that that test for myself like how much can i push and pull this stuff and still come up with something interesting knowing that somebody along the way maybe lots of people are going to criticize it but but if i have learned anything from you sean (laughs) and i have learned some things it is to really double down on the things that you can control and whatever the opposite of doubling down on the things that you can't control is You know, so I'm, I'm going to do the same thing with these with these pieces, you know, and and try and create some some different, you know, you know what this partially is. I was I was thinking about this the other day. This is kind of my response or reaction to the NFT thing. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll make something digital air quotes, but it will still end up being analog. Mm-hmm. And it came from analog. So you can't tell me that it's that it's one thing or another because it's all of those things. It's not just analog. It's not just digital. It's it's kind of further down that rabbit hole that I started in 2009 with some of the work of Dorothy Simpson Krauss, trying to bridge analog and digital into one kind of cohesive workflow that that made sense and that and that the work that came out on the other side of it was unique. Yeah. And this is just another experiment in all of that. And I'm really happy with with where things are going with it so far. I mean, I showed you a couple things before we or earlier when we, we were talking and I like it and I, I kind of don't care whether it goes anywhere. Well, well more than that, you, you, it looks great. I, I, I don't know what happened to art. Isn't that enough? Like, yeah. shouldn't yeah. it just be OK that something looks cool? Yeah. Um, I, I, I had the same feeling with photography. I, I really, it was one of the things when I first got into photography that I, I surprised me, how there was this chasm between those who embraced 
editing digitally and those who thought it was the devil. And it mm. really, some very strong opinions on both sides, especially on the anti side. Mm -hmm. I made a whole video about it years ago about like, um, you know, to Photoshop or not to Photoshop basically. Right. But just saying like, they've been, we've been editing photos since the very beginning. You know, there were analog retouching kits. Uh, we've, we've always cropped. Don't kid yourself. Like yeah, some of the most famous right. photos, you know, they, they are <laughs> heavily cropped. Like, don't think they're not right. You know, from Elliot Erwitt to Arnold, Arnold Newman, like they cropped like crazy, you know, I yeah. think they didn't. Um, like all these editing, dodge and burn has been used with an inch of its life, right back to Ansel Adams and before, like this is the, all these editing techniques have been there. Why does it matter that it's now in a computer for to some people? It's this strangely like Luddite view that if you include the tools we have in software, it's cheating somehow. And uh, coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, it always seems to be people who've never taken the time to learn that stuff, mm. who just seem to want to dismiss it because they never want to have to learn it. And they, it's a convenient excuse to moralize about it. But I, I, I can never understand it because personally, if you show me an amazing photograph, I don't really care how you got there. If, if, if you're claiming it's journalism, and you've edited it heavily and it's a lie, that's an ethical issue. Yeah, sure. But short of, but short of that, I don't care. Right. If you're saying to me, like, look, I did some editing here, I did some photography here. What do you think of this? Does it look nice? I'm like, yeah, it looks brilliant. I love it. I'm not like, yeah, but are you lying to me now because it's this, that, or that? I don't care. <laughs> Just show me beautiful stuff. I don't understand this, like, obsession with... It's not, like I said, as long as it's not journalism, as long as you're not claiming you never edited something, but you actually did, there's no integrity issue in it. Why are people so obsessed? And it's the same... I love that you're doing this with your work. Like, you're taking a very analog process for yourself, and then you're throwing it into some software and adding more, and then you're taking it back out into analog, and you're you're properly mixing every media that you have at your disposal and all the tools you have in your toolbox because you're a Photoshop ninja as well. You've got all this stuff at your disposal to create something that that is better than what it would have been without that. And I love that. And I, I yeah. love that you don't question it. And I, I would strongly advise if anyone does question it, to tell them to go stick it where the sun don't shine. Because, I mean, I, it really doesn't make a difference. And I, I'd love it if photographers in particular could get over this odd um, Luddite view that like editing is somehow evil and brand new and only rocked up in the 1990s with the advent of Adobe Photoshop. You must be kidding yourself. You don't know your history. No. We've all go, go look at a book called Faking It, uh, Photography Before Photoshop. And this is back to the 1800s. Absolutely. You know, uh, there's there's a, a one of the more famous compositors was a, a Canadian fellow named William Notman who would photograph dozens, sometimes hundreds of glass plates, and then combine them by hand into one massive composite image. Yeah. And it was, it was a wonder at the time. People, people thought, oh, how is this possible? Yeah. Magic. Yeah. Or, or um, I mean, the, 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 I was listening to the story of the little girls down the bottom of the garden who faked fairies in the camera. Did, yeah, did you hear sure. That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they fooled the scientific community for years because they went dangling lights in front of a slow shutter speed. And everyone's like, there are genuinely fairies at the bottom of the garden. They use it as an excuse because they were home late and had dirty knees. Right. And like, they're like, oh, no, there are fairies. Like, come on, man. So they're like, well, we'll take <laughs> dad's on. camera down tomorrow. They fake the whole thing. And everyone's like, seriously? And they were embarrassed about the, the fact that they got away with it because it was yeah. a total sham. But how funny. And then obviously, like in your world, you know, that Soviet era propaganda, which was like, you know, composite photography with design and everything else that went into it. That's just, that was, I mean, kind of now we look at it like it's kind of retro beautiful, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think but it is. It, yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I really don't understand why people have got a bee in their bonnet about editing software. Did you, did you ever fall on that side of straight out of the camera or nothing? No, no. Well, I mean, the only thing I always, I had an issue with, and I still do, honestly, is photographers who claim straight out the camera, but they edit. But uh, like I said, that's just an integrity issue or, or the one that it's, it's not an issue, but I do find it kind of funny are, are the film photographers who want to rave about the fact that this is, this is straight out of the camera, guys. I don't do anything to my images. It's like, yeah, but you, but you are choosing your film stock. 
Uh, and and that is the color edit that you choose on all your images. If you chose Kodachrome years ago, that's the the analog preset you chose to apply to every image you took. It's right. not that there's no, but you just don't have any control over it. And I was always like, well, why is that better than what I do, which is shoot very neutrally, and I apply my own color look to my images that I create from scratch for every image. I think that takes 10 times more skill than you reaching over a counter to buy a roll of film that you like. I'm designing my color look from scratch using hue, saturation, and luminance in every image that I do. I'm basically designing my own, if I choose Kodachrome or, or Fuji Superior, whatever it is, I design my own color look from scratch. And, and, and somehow picking a film stock and having it come out of camera in a way that, that Kodak chose your cam- colors, you didn't choose them, is somehow better? I, I don't understand that. Or purer? That's that's rubbish to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I don't, you know, I, I I second what you said earlier about I don't really much care how you got there. Is it is it an interesting image? Is it is it a compelling image? Is there a narrative there? How is the composition? Is there something that moves my eye across the surface of that image? If so, I don't care if you used GIMP or Photoshop or you know, yeah. it, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. Yeah, the classic of the street photographers. Like, oh, yeah, it's got to be reportage. It's got to be reportage. You can't, you can't change anything. I'm like, going, well, what do you think of Fan Ho's stuff? Oh, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He was an amazing street photographer. And then you go, well, his, <laughs> his most famous image is his cousin. He's got posing up against a wall. And the diagonal shadow on the wall is apparently probably produced with dodge and burn in, in post using the edge of a piece of paper as a hard line. So, so what do you mean? What do you mean when you say like, because for me, I don't care. And and he wasn't trying to hide that. I think it's out there. We've just created this mythos around him. Like he was this perfect street photographer who only did. No, no, no. We've just made that up because we're applying some odd modern era morality around photography to his work retrospectively when he never tried to apply that himself. And you're wrong. You've got your facts wrong. He didn't care. He was just trying to make a good looking image. I mean, some of his stuff was was deliberately composite. He did these, he was basically trying to replicate um, Sumie uh, Japanese ink paintings. You know, you get the kind of, you know, kind of misty trees over a lake with a mountain in the background and, and, and a boat on the lake. Like that was about three or four photographs blown in, in exposure comped together that he did on purpose. And you could see it's deliberately comped. There's no ways that was a genuine photograph and he didn't care. It wasn't what he was aiming for. Right. Good for him. He used every tool at his disposal, mixed it all in together because he wanted that to look a particular way. And it did. You've talked to enough photographers who, for whatever reason, really have to hold on to that mythos, as you, as you mentioned earlier, that, that there is something, you know, special about this and, and only I can, you know, I've, I've cracked this or I'm the only, it's like, well, okay, you didn't. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's that when I when I was in high school, I went through a period of of being really enamored with Ansel Adams, Mm. not as a photographer, though, but as a technician in the darkroom. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you look at what he shot versus what he printed, my God, they're they're night and day. I mean, literally in some cases. Right. And, uh, you know, it's I have enormous respect for people who can. Uh, produce work in the darkroom. Uh, Jerry Ulsman, who we recently lost uh, last week, um, mm. you know, famously kept, I think it was seven enlargers in his darkroom and would move from, from one to the next and create these beautiful analog composites that we can do that very, well, not very easily, but we can do it easier now in Photoshop. But he was creating these phenomenally creative and complex analog composite images do I fault him for not using Photoshop? Absolutely not. I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a strange misnomer. We have to get over it. Like, I feel like we've had computers around for long enough now to get used to them and go like, okay, maybe this can be part of the process, but there are, there is that group. You know, yeah. you know what? I'm going to be, I'll be honest. I think from a lot of photographers, it's an excuse. It's, it's often used as yeah, that looks great what you're doing, but what I'm doing doesn't have any editing. And I'm also going, yeah, but what you're doing is crap. So so don't use it as an excuse. I, I feel like a lot of photographers go, yeah, yeah, but you have to view my images kinder because I don't do any editing on them. Or you have to view my images kinder because I shoot them on film. Instead of going, well, 
shouldn't the image be great anyway and the techniques you choose just be chosen to get you the best image possible instead of going well i know my images are weak but hey i at least i didn't do any editing as if it's a moral thing it's just <laughs> such a it's such a weak excuse i'll give you a pass like, then for this terrible composition yeah exactly but i think that's what a lot of people are asking yeah yeah i know but i don't do any editing it's like well well i shouldn't have to tell you what i do to my images like the truth is i don't i don't i do very little editing when it comes to the stuff i do out and about that i post to instagram it's honestly a raw file thrown into Lightroom Mobile on my phone, which has curves and a tiny bit of color and then kicked out. There's never any more like editing. I don't Photoshop those or anything, but it doesn't matter even if I did or, or did nothing at all. Those images should stand on their own regardless of my editing technique, not use my lack of editing. Oh, I only use Lightroom Mobile for 30 seconds. So now you have to look at it kinder. It should stand on its own two feet or I'm not doing a good job. I shouldn't be able to bring in my lack of editing into the conversation to make an excuse for myself. Yeah. Are writers having these kinds of conversations? I mean, are, are writers going, oh, Stan, boy, he's, he's using Word and he should be using a 1938 Corona or whatever. I mean, are, <laughs> he's are, are they spell check? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> are other areas of, of creative thought and expression as critical of one another or is there something, is there something special about photography? Because it's, maybe most obviously the art and science kind of put together maybe not even most obviously but there is there is an art and a craft and a science and a mechanics and and all of that kind of stuff that is part of the pursuit but i don't know a lot of writers who are complaining that you know that so and so is is not still using a manual typewriter it, it just it seems like photography is is unique in that respect well may, maybe music's very similar Hmm. In that, like, I think musicians can definitely be purists about things. So you can obviously create any sound and, and map uh, or sample any instrument to within right. an inch of its life and play it back. Like, like an artist, and they do often, could could sample Jimi Hendrix guitar and play it back through a keyboard on their album and you you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. But I bet you a lot of a lot of musicians would have an issue with that. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I get why that would matter to you in particular if you're a guitarist. Right. But as a listener, I don't care. I, I really don't care. Like maybe you've got a case where a guy, um, knows how to play something in on a synth, but has never really picked up and learned how to play a guitar properly, but wants to play all the parts and is basically a one man, uh, band in his bedroom and he wants to record drums so he records them on the keyboard and he wants to record guitar so he does it on the keyboard if i listen to that album and he communicates songs to me that make me feel what he wants me to feel and that touches me i really i really don't care how he got there right it's, it's not important to me it, it if, if you're going to be a musician and go well he, he didn't use drums or he should have hired a sessionist drummer well should he though? Because because what's the point? Is it to communicate something and hit me, or is it is it to do something the way you think it should be done because you're a purist? Right. Is is it the method or is it the message? Which is it? And and for and me, can't there be room for both? Well, yeah, but I I, I think the method is for the artist, mm. and I think the message is for the person who takes it in, and I but but it's where other artists impose their method on on other artists i think that's where it crosses a line for me where i'm like you're not being helpful being judgmental about another artist's process because of their limitations or choices isn't isn't really fair surely it's up to them and whatever brings them joy but me as a as a consumer of someone else's art it's message first and foremost and i, I right uh, knowing the method is often only a curiosity afterwards or something that might make for an interesting story but or, or might enhance what I'm listening to if I find out how difficult they made it for themselves on purpose, maybe. But it's still message first. And if the message isn't there, I couldn't care what they're doing. Right. Well, I remember, uh, gosh, this has been a couple months back when we were talking about Billie Eilish and Phineas, how, yes. how they, they recorded this amazing music in their bedroom using yep. a copy of Logic and a whole bunch of overdub. And it sounds phenomenal. Yeah, with, with synths and side chains. There wasn't a lot of acoustic instrumentation in there. And who cares? Right, right. Who cares? I kind of expect them more for that. I do. Because they couldn't, they couldn't have done it in their bedroom if they brought in tons of sessionists. 
right. and, and had to need, needed a studio space. I, I respect that it was Phineas messing around with software and a keyboard and Billy Eilish sitting on a bed singing into a microphone. I'm like, that's kind of cooler yeah. for me. With, with kind of a pillow fort like you've got. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like my pillow fort. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, if, if it's good enough for Billy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, and, and uh, we were talking about the, uh, the conversation with Jack White and Zane Lowe the other day. And, and how Jack is famously an analog musician, builds guitars and, and is, is too fancy and, and all this kind of analog equipment, old timey analog equipment. But yeah. he, he did also make some concessions and go, you know what? We did some digital stuff on this record and yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of liked it, <laughs> you know? And I think it is really in the way that you approach the tools in the way that you use the tools. You don't have to go all in on everything. You can use it and sprinkle to taste and, and still have something that is unique and doesn't sound canned. You know, there's a big difference between applying a Lightroom preset and tweaking an image and getting something that is preset-ish, but unique to you. Yes. And I think there's room for both of those things. Yeah. And I love Jack White for his like analog first, you know, nailing some string to a bit of wood and playing a guitar out of it. I right. love him for that. But I would lose respect for him if he was running around judging everyone else for not being as analog as he was. But his right. process is for himself and that's the way he loves to do it. And I respect any artist who makes those choices for themselves. I lose respect where they turn around and start judging other people for their choices. That doesn't make any sense to me. Is it ultimately from a space of, I guess, fear? Is, is, is that why we, we have those tendencies as humans? I'm putting, you, I'm putting you on the spot as a counselor. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take a seat on the couch, Jeffrey. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I, I know from talking to too many photographers and going backwards and forwards with trolls online about Photoshop in particular, that it is what I said earlier. It's mostly about their particular fear that the software seems just unfathomable to them and quite intimidating. And they're, mm -hmm. they're annoyed that it gives everyone else a leg up. So instead they climb on a moral high horse and try and turn it into a moral issue where they're some purist savior of the medium. And that's why they're making the decision. But most of the time it's because they're too scared to get out there and learn it for themselves. Because honestly, like, I, I've spent years and years teaching myself Photoshop and I know it fairly well, but I don't, I don't use it day to day. I don't use it on, on probably 85, 90% of the photography I produce. I don't use any Photoshop, but I know it so that if I want to use it, like I do on my portraits, then I use it and go to work on them. But the stuff I'm shooting every day, I don't use it. I've, I've never used it as an excuse. I've never gone, well, well, my daily stuff is like no Photoshop. So I don't like anyone who does Photoshop because my stuff's purer than everyone else. I'm, I'm just being an ass, you know? And I think, unfortunately, it's that moral high horsing. I think too many artists are doing, acting as if the, what, the choices they've made because their fear of learning this new technology, maybe they feel it puts them back a step. Well, they're, they're not doing it because of that or because they're scared of the technology. They're doing it because they're secretly better and purer than everyone else. Come on. I, I really think it's a cheap trick. In most people's minds, it's a, it's a rationale. Mm. Yeah. So how do you, that's if, not true for everyone. That's not, yeah. I mean, there are some people who go like, Hey, like I'm a film photographer cause I love the medium. I'm Jack right. White. I want to nail bits of string to wood. Like I get it. That's for you. And that's your process and you love it. But the difference is when somebody genuinely uses an analog only technique cause they love it, they don't have time to judge other people who do it differently because it's for them. That process is for them. So there's no tone of, hey, everyone else should do it like me. Everyone's bastardizing the art form. No one's saying that who's doing it for real reasons. It's, it's insecure trolls who are turning around telling everyone else they should be doing it a particular way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and, you know, you and I both know of some really incredible photographers who, who have chosen to, you know, walk that path of analog, yeah. but they don't. They don't put it on everyone else as a, as some sort of creative failing because they don't. Exactly. I mean, I've just been to, uh, I'm going back on next Tuesday to go and interview, uh, Jack Lowe, who you've spoken to on your podcast. Yep. Um, and I was with him last week, um, filming him shooting beautiful, you know, eight by 10, I think they are glass plate negatives, old school chemical pouring, beautiful old, uh, 
um, you know, bellows camera. Uh, and I mean, the, the analog process is magical. It's absolutely magical to watch. It's beautiful to look at. And it produces images. I don't know if you could get any other way like that. You just can't fake that look for me. I think it's absolutely magical. And his choice to shoot that way is because that's the look that he wants and he absolutely loves the process and what it does uh, as a medium. It, it's there's, there's so much integrity through it. But every other second, Jack is running around taking photographs on his phone so he can upload them to his social media platforms. Mm-hmm. That he's got mm-hmm. going to keep people going, taking little bits of video. He doesn't hate digital media. He just uses this beautiful analog thing for this project because it's the right choice for the project. And it takes an incredible amount of skill and produces really special images. But there's no judgment for anything else that anyone else is doing. And he embraces digital where he needs it as well. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you had said, uh, and if, if you want me to leave this part out because you're going to talk to him, I, I, no uh-huh. problem. But um, you had said that, that, and I think he may have even, actually, I don't know if he's told me this, but uh, when, when this project is done, when the Lifeboat project is done, he, he won't use an 8x10 wet plate camera any longer, ever. Yeah, I asked him while we were doing stuff. I said, hey, so what, what happens after that? Because he's, he's eight years into a 10-year project. So what happens in two years when you're done? What are you going to do with this process? He's like, uh, I'll pack it all away. Like, you'll never take another glass plate photograph again. You're never going to. Nope. I'm like, what you did to do portraits for people? He's like, no, it was for this. That's what I wanted to use it for. I'm packing it away after this. I'm like, wow, that's incredible to me. Isn't I was it? trying to encourage him to like, what about, um, you know, teaching other people how to do it and, you know, putting a manual together or something. So you've got, you've got, he's got a ton of, you know, learned knowledge uh you know like a proper artisan a proper craftsman has learnt, you know how to pour these chemicals exactly the motion he needs to you know his hand needs to pour and the plate needs to move under it and how he hangs his pegs and all the tiny little details he's got. you could put together 10 years worth of knowledge for people who'd like to pick this up after he's like yeah maybe but you know i'm pretty much done with it when it's done i'm moving on i'm i, I want to do other new things and he was talking about audio you know you've spoken to him on process driven about mm-hmm. his love of capturing audio he really wants to double down on that next and i kind of love that it's like that's the right medium for that project when that project's done i'm done with it and i'm moving on to learn new things and good for you because you'll always be learning you're never resting your laurels on anything and i might feel oh man but you're leaving all this incredible you know the skill set you know in a in a dusty cupboard somewhere now he's like well it doesn't matter i'll just learn a new one i love that i love that yeah, always learning i do mentality. too i do too and he is to, to your point he is a huge fan of audio specifically field recordings and and being out in the world recording the world around him he he is yeah. a monster at that and I, yeah. I can't wait to see what he does yeah he's got a coolest mic as well it's massive yeah. have you seen that thing yeah 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 I am a little sad, though, that all, as you said, all of that knowledge and experience, there's a, there's a potential in his mind that that doesn't need to go anywhere beyond him. Just because I think it is, like you, I think it's an incredible process. And he learned from a number of people, John Coffer among them. And yeah. it would be incredible to pay that knowledge forward to someone who does want to pick up that mantle and, and continue in that, in that arena of analog of, of wet plate. And maybe he will, but maybe it's just, you know, either way, the part that I find interesting is he doesn't want to do it for himself anymore. He knows right. he's going to be done with that. It's incredible to me. You know, it would be, it would be like me going, well, I'm going to do a portrait series for the next five years and then I'm not going to touch a camera again. Yeah. I couldn't imagine doing that. I want to shoot until the day I die. Even if I have moved on to other media as like my main form of communication, I still want to keep it going. But he's like, no, um, I'm done. Which I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why I respect it. I just do. I respect how decided he is about it and how it was for that period of his life and he's over it. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of cool. Well, and it's been, it's been a massive investment of time of money, yeah. of resources, of, of emotional energy. And I mean, good on him for, for having that, that type of clarity. I don't know that I know very many artists who are that clear about what they, not just what they want, but what they don't want when a body of work is, is completed. Yeah. 
Yeah. Being able to hang something up properly mm -hmm. and say, I'm done, but done in a good way. Not done like I give up. I'm having a tantrum with it. Done like this was always for 10 years of my life for one project. And then I'm hanging it up with a smile on my face. I used it for everything I wanted and I want to try other things now. It's really cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And, and the, the things that he has learned along the way, I know we, we've, we've talked about him several times, but he is such a terrific example of, of really putting your money where your mouth is and, and doubling down on your vision, your talent, your abilities, your creativity, and your integrity, you know, in, in him choosing yeah. to leave Facebook-owned social media platforms and instead build his own. And it's been yeah. successful enough to continue to support him on this project and, and to bring to bring this work to life is, you know, you've seen it firsthand and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that you got a chance to see that, but it is no easy feat as you've seen to bring these images to life. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a lot of work for every single image. It's a lot of work. I even asked him like, do you, uh, do portraits for people with this? Because I thought like, well, you're trying to fund this stuff, doing portraits for people. You could sell these for a decent whack of money. He refuses anyone who asks him to do portraits flat out, no matter how much money they offer him. The only people he will do portraits, single portraits for are people who work for the RNLI who want to commission him for single portraits that he then they'll then pay for. But it has to be broadly part of this project. He won't in even in off seasons or the last two years when he's been at home with pandemics and stuff, he won't shoot portraits of anybody else. This camera, this process is for those people only in his mind. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. I mean, the determination and, and, and the, the rigidity that you, the artistic rigidity that you have to exhibit because you're denying yourself at some point. If you're not engaging in this process that you ostensibly love engaging yeah. in, you're yeah. denying yourself that joy in, in keeping it for this exclusivity of use. It, it just, it's fascinating to me. But I bet in his head, there's probably... A sense in which that medium is is purer for him because it's kept for something it's i mean it's 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 this idea of like holy you know holy in spirituality means if if an object is holy it's because it's for the exclusive use of something hmm. like maybe a ritual or whatever like i think his camera is holy for him because it's for the exclusive use of serving this this rnli community and, 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 and maybe he feels like if it gets used anywhere else, it stops being holy. It's not for exclusive use of this project anymore to serve this, this group of people. Um, I, I, I'm going to guess little things he said, it's something like that, which mm. I love. Have you ever experienced another artist across the board? Doesn't have to be photography, but another artist who has a similar approach or a similar almost protectiveness about their chosen media? I don't know. Have you? I no, think. I haven't. I can't, I can't think to that extent. No, no. I, mean, I know, I know musicians, guitarists, for example, who are very, very particular about the guitar they play. Um, and they play a very particular guitar and a very particular song. Um, uh, and, and that, that has a meaning uh, for them. You know, I mean, I know like John Mayer's black one guitar is, is a very particular Although, you know, he doesn't use it as much anymore, but for a time that, that you would never see him play gravity without that one guitar, hmm. because the combination of that guitar and that song, not just sound, but I think a bunch of other things like legacy and history and his own story with it, I think comes together and means more. Um, but yeah, I, I, no, I can't, I can't think of, I can't, I can't really think of it to that extent. Certainly no one I know personally. Yeah. I'm kind of doing it, actually, thinking about it. There's a, I mean, I have a lens that I only take out for this portrait project that I'm doing at the moment. Um, it, it's never been used for anything else and, and, and hasn't been. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm too rigid in that it couldn't be, but it definitely has at the moment been reserved for this one series of images. Um, and has that been on purpose, because... or has that just been the way it's kind of worked out? Are you intentional about 
only using that image yeah, you know for that, I mean, that lens? It's not good. It's not good. It's All, right. All right. All right. You're already giggling. All right. Hit us. Chicken. Hit us. Because, like, <laughs> it's because I'm a coward and this lens costs a lot of money. So I don't travel with it. I don't, I don't go anywhere with it. I don't walk around doing street photography with it. I keep it at home and I only take it out for this one project because that's the reason I bought this lens and I'm scared it's going to get damaged or broken. So I'm, I think it's more because I'm scared and protective of it. <laughs> I'm just going to wrap it all in cotton wool and put it in a safe. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fascinating the, the idea of a specific tool. The I mean, the only thing I can even sort of relate to on that level is I have a I have a brush. I have a particular brush that I've had since college. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a it's what's called a lining fitch. Um, in set design, there are these types of brushes, they're called fitches and they come in all sorts of different widths and they're long handle. And, and this was, this is the only one that I still have from this set of brushes from college. And I can remember every show that I painted on with it. And it's, you know, it's filthy and, and, you know, the, there's gunk in the base of the ferrule and, and, you know, but I, I love this brush and I, mm. and I use it. And when I do use it, there is something about those memories that come back. Mm. You know, there is something about that time that comes back. And that was, you know, that was the first time when I was in the theater department, that was the first time I ever really felt at home. It was the first time I ever really felt like I was amongst my people. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, found tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I knew it from the, from the day I walked into the building first day, you know, I, my sweet mate at, uh, at school, one of them, uh, a guy named Adam Roth, he was an actor and I had no idea what direction I was going to go in. And, and I just didn't know. Um, and he said, oh man, you should come up to the theater building. And I said, oh, theater building. Hmm, okay. <laughs> and, uh, walked through the doors and, and. God, the people that I met straight away and, and, you know, the big roll up door to the scene shop was open and it was a pass through. So, you know, you look left and you're looking into the scene shop and you look right and you're looking onto the stage of the studio theater. And I was like, oh man, this is, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, this is, and I changed my major that day. Wow. So picking that brush up for you, like, do, does it, does it have that feeling of, do you reserve it for anything you do in your images? Does it feel different when you pick it up? I don't reserve it for anything. There's, there, there are certain things that it's better at because it's, it's got longer bristles and it's, it's an inch and a half wide. So it's not good for detail work, obviously, nor is it good for gigantic sort of expanses of, of paint. So it's, it, it's got a, 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 I guess, a set use case in terms of just the size of the area, but I don't reserve it for certain things. I just like the way it feels in my hand because that was such a happy time in my life. Mm it brings back a little bit of that. It brings back it. You know what it does? It doesn't do anything for the work, but it helps me to feel a little less lost because uh, yeah. that happiness that I felt that, that sense of belonging that I felt at that time in my life comes through in a weird way. That's cool. It's great that an object can do that. Does it get, does it get special treatment? Does it get cleaned for a little bit longer than the other brushes or anything? Uh, no, not intentionally. And I've thought about replacing it and you know, getting a new set of brushes, but there is just something about that. And it's the only thing that I still have from that time. You know? And I had, oh my God, I, I spent thousands on art supplies and brushes and paint and tools. Mm. And, and that's the only thing that I still have from that time. Yeah. How about you? Is there, is there something like that? Is there some sort of almost totem object or tool that you, that you have? Not really. I, I think I'm very, I mean, you know this about me, like I'm very pragmatic about objects and gear and stuff. I don't, I don't like to get too attached to anything. Um, I don't think, I mean, I, you know, I, I took all my camera gear down one day and just switched out for a whole bunch of other stuff because it made more sense on paper. Like I didn't really care about anything. Um, oh, that yeah, was sorry. Sorry. I know it gives you hives. Um, you know, so, that, that was, that was, that for me was my desk for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, what is he doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've just never, ever, I've never cared. Everything, everything I use photography wise is only a tool and I don't care about any of it. If it, if it all, 
is lost tomorrow, but I have the money to replace it. I'll replace it with all the same stuff or all different stuff. It really doesn't matter as long as I can get the job done. I don't, right. I don't care about a camera. Like if I, if I lost it, I'll be ashamed because that meant a lot to me. Um, Which I find fascinating, th- Sean. I find fascinating because you, you do acknowledge that objects can be imbued with something greater than the object itself, but it just doesn't work out that way in your life typically. Well, it, it does, but not with cameras so i've got i've got little objects like and, and like again a lot of this has been lost in that recent fire for my mm-hmm, family with mm-hmm. the storage unit but i mean there was there was a bible there i'm sad i lost because mm. it was a it was a slimline leather bound bible that i used to preach for 10 years and oh, i used wow. the same bible for 10 years to preach from so it was full of like markings in it and like notes from sermons i used to preach without notes and i used to be able to put sort of six words in a column next to a passage and I used, that's all I needed and I could talk for an hour wow. you know? and I had a lot of that stuff in there that the the spine had come off so the spine was duct tape because I'd had to duct tape the thing back up yeah like that was a special object because it represented a decade of my life and a thing I did and I'm mm. sad I've lost that you know that that did mean a lot to me as an object sentimentally mm-hmm. um but yeah I've, I think it's the difference for me is is if it's a job that I'm doing I don't care. But if it's, if it's, I mean, maybe if you caught me, you know, if I, if I do an amazing job of a, of a portrait project I'm working on now and put out a book and it becomes something and then 50 years, 50 years from now, well, I'm not going to be a 50, but who knows? Like, like 30, 30 <laughs> years Optimistic. from now. Yeah. yeah I'm like 20 <laughs> in my head. Um, like if 30 years from now, like if I'm sort of, if I still have that lens, I did that project with maybe in that case, I'd be like, yeah. oh, this means something to me. But while I'm using it as a tool, I don't care. It's only a tool and I can switch it out for another and it doesn't matter as long yeah. as I can get the job done. So there are objects, but they aren't, they aren't yeah. relegated yeah. to your toolbox per se. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I still have my mom's first Bible. Oh, uh, sweet. Yeah. yeah. She got it when she was, I think 13 or 14 years old. And it's, in, it's, you know, there's a, an inscription in the front. It's got a little zipper that, that, you know, kind of closes it. Yeah. Um, I in fact, I have, she has, she had a quite a collection of Bibles and I have them all. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Stuff like that for sure. But not, not, not tools I'm working with at the time. I deliberately yeah. try and keep them unsentimental because if I lose them or break them, I just want to be able to replace it and move on. I don't want to have to, you know, let it slow me down that, I'm also emotionally attached to a screwdriver, you know, (laughs) I want to just replace the screwdriver and keep building kind of thing. What about the work itself? Does that, does that have some sort of imbued either importance or power or, or something beyond just, just the work? I mean, does that work? Have you done work that felt special in that way that you regard higher than other work that you've done? Or is it all kind of part of a, a similar continuum? Not really. I mean, I think the closer the work is to me, the the less sentimental I am about it. Hmm. Like I thought if I, if I, for example, lost, for some reason, I lost every video I've made in the last five years. I'd be, I'd be sad about the amount of work I've lost, but I don't think I'd feel sentimentally sad because mm-hmm. I could do it again better, you know, now. And I, I think that's how I'd feel about it. But I did again, back like in my twenties, I did managed to save a whole series of mp3s that were messages i'd given at the time Mm. um in different churches and youth groups and stuff and those those mean something to me because again there's enough distance from them now that they're kind of history for me and if i lose them now i lose those thoughts because i don't think like that anymore and i lose who i was then because i'm not that person anymore but losing more recent stuff i feel like it's kind of it's kind of less sentimental and more just a pain in the ass yeah yeah i wonder if there's a Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was wondering for you. Do you, do you have things like what if you lost stuff you created in the last five years? How would you feel the sentimentality of it? You know, that's. I don't think so because I don't. Uh, admittedly, I have kept very poor records of the work that I've done. Uh, I don't have really anything that I don't have any of the stuff that I did at Universal Studios. I don't have any of the freelance stuff that I did for Disney and Warner's and Sony and like I don't have any of that stuff. Mm. Um, I, I kept, I kept very poor track of my work and it's, it's worked against me in that if I wanted to go, uh, get another creative gig and be part of a team or something, I don't have anything to show for it. You have to take me at my word other than, 
you know, being able to talk about it or, or being able to reference where I've worked. I can't show you anything that I've done at any of those places. Yeah. And that's, I, I don't, you know, I can't do anything about it now um, because none of that stuff exists anymore. You know, the, the, that's, that's the double-edged sword of the web being so fluid. You know, work yeah. that's, that's up is, is often gone, you know, in weeks or months, let alone, you know, 20 years. So I don't, I don't have a lot of examples of my work. And I mean, you know, as well as I do that, I'm, I'm kind of a burn it down guy anyway. So <laughs> yeah. there are only, a funny, ca- isn't it? yeah, there are only rare occasions where I, you know, kind of lament that there, that there doesn't, you know, that I don't have anything left because it, it doesn't really matter, I guess. I'm always trying to move ahead and move forward. and. And yet it's also kind of locked me into this freelance existence because I don't have a portfolio to go anywhere else. Here's a question then. Do you think you're more, because I don't think, I think of you as quite a sentimental person about particular things. So do you think you're, you, do you think you're sentimental about particular objects in your life, but not very sentimental about your own work? Yes. Yes. Do you know why? Um, yes. Do you want to say? <laughs> Not really. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, Thanks, it, folks. It, <laughs> I think it gets down to worth. It, it, it gets down to how much I value my own work or how good I think my mm. work is. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a big topic. And, mm. and I mm. think I think the the work that I value that I've done, I don't know that I trust my sense of it's not objectivity about it, but I don't I don't know if I trust myself in thinking that it's any good. Mm. I mean, I want it to be good. I want it to be interesting. I want it to be compelling, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I it's I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it or explain it much better than that. I'm I'm much more attached to objects that are tied to memories in my life. Mm. Um, I'm much more, you know, I, I have a, a big box of, of my mom's jewelry and it's mm. not valuable. It's, it's costume jewelry from, you know, some of it's from the forties and fifties. Some of it was her mother's, some of it was her grandmother's, mm-hmm. but, and, and I wrestled with this because just because something is meaningful to someone else doesn't mean it has to be meaningful to you. Yeah. And as, as, a, as a child who has lost their parents, the, the natural, I think the, the, the natural tendency is to place value on the things that our parents valued. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're cleaning out the house or when we're getting, you know, going through their things and, oh, well, gosh, dad really loved this or mom really loved that. So I need to keep this regardless of whether it means anything to me or not. But there's there's a sense of, of, of value in some of the things that I kept and some of the objects that I have that transcend me. And it's not necessarily because I find them valuable. It's because they were held dear by people who gave them to me, or they were, they were held dear by, by people who owned them before me. And I'm, I'm, I'm respecting that, that tradition, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the word would be. Um, But in terms of my own work, I'm still really trying to figure out if it's any good. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not letting, I mean, there are a couple of pieces that I've done that I really like and that I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell. They're not for sale. Juliet and Romeo is not for sale. One Nation Underground is not for sale. F to the Power of Three is not, it's not for sale. So there are a few pieces that I've, that I've done that I go, yep, that's exactly what I wanted to do. That's exact, that turned out exactly the way I wanted it to turn out. But those are very few very far between and everything else is up for grabs how would it make you feel if if you knew that after you're gone other people were sentimental about your work hmm i mean it's i mean i'd be dead so i'd i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't have much okay. to say uh, don't make uh, me explain hypotheticals to yeah you. yeah yeah <laughs> uh you know i i i think it would it would be lovely you know, I, 
I, I wish that I could, and I'm working on it and I think I'm, I'm close, but I, I wish that I could more easily get out of my own way and see that now and see what the response to that is now. Um, I think some of the work is really good. I think some of the photographs I've taken are good. I think some of the paintings I've done are good. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's, it is very, it's very difficult to get out of my own way and, and let go of that control, you know, let go of, of thinking that I have any control over it. You know, CJ Chilvers said something the other day, uh, yesterday or day before yesterday about when we were kind of going back and forth about the book and it was, it was, you know, you don't get to control any of that anyway. So just put it out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All the stuff that you had control over, you've done all the stuff that you, you know, anything that you had control over it, that's it. You're, you're, you, you hit the, you hit the save button. Yeah. You hit the export button and now it's out of your hands, you know? And my friend, father, Bill would always say that a painting's final resting place is not in your studio. It has to be out in the world. That's the final step of that process is releasing it into the world and releasing yeah. it so that others may enjoy it. He said, because think about it. Think about what, a, what an incredible gift that is, that someone walks by a painting of yours every day and it brings them joy. Yeah. So. I love that. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> test, test, boom. Subscribe to Jeffrey Sedora's Everything in your favorite podcast app and support the show by leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen or by sharing the episode on social media. You can help support the costs of producing the shows directly by tapping the donate button at jeffreysedoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S.com. And to those of you who have already donated, thank you very much. It really does help. Connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. Connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. And if you'd like to send us an email or a voice message, you can do that at deepnatter at gmail.com. As always, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you'll come back for the next one. <laughs>